Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Dan Gilroy's new legal thriller, Roman J. Israel Esquire. Set amidst the overburdened Los Angeles criminal court system, the film tells the story of Roman Israel, a driven attorney whose life is upended when he is recruited to join a firm led by cutthroat lawyer George Pierce and begins a friendship with young equal rights champion Maya Alston. As a turbulent series of events ensues, Israel's lifelong and career-defining activism is tested. In addition to Roman J. Israel Esquire, Mr. Gilroy's other directorial credit is the feature film Nightcrawler. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Gilroy spoke with director Jeremy Kagan about filming Roman J. Israel Esquire. During their conversation, Mr. Gilroy discusses collaborating with Denzel Washington to fully realize the character, the surprising amount of visual effects needed for the film, and the changes he made to the film after its premiere in Toronto. Thank you for coming. Thank you for making a film that we got to come to. Um, you know, I was thinking just a little earlier, since it's that Thanksgiving time, for some of us who know a little bit about the Gilroy family, we've got, we've got a brother who's also a writer and a filmmaker. We've got a father who's a, a, a well-known writer. What was Thanksgiving like at a Gilroy house? It was my father at the head of a big dining room table telling stories that we'd heard so many times that as he was telling them, we would raise our hand and go like five, like we've heard it five times or four times. And it didn't stop him, by the way. No, he was an Irish storyteller. He just told stories endlessly. And did he also inspire you He died all? a year and a half ago. I'm sorry for that, but I'm glad he was your dad. Did he inspire you both, all three? Well, I know one brother's also an editor, but did he inspire you all to be storytellers? He did didn't he want us to go that? I was just telling you, I, 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 me and my two I and my two brothers were born out here, and when we were three, my father moved us to upstate New York because he didn't want us getting involved in the movie business. So he was inspiring in the sense that he, that he showed you that, that really life is about life and not about the movie business, that was inspiring to me. And I've taken that lesson very deep to heart. But he was not inspiring in the sense of going to the movie business. I think he was vaguely horrified that we were all going into it. And I understand that, but... Would you share, I mean, there's when you have a creative father like this, sometimes that can be intimidating. Would you sort of say, Pop, look at what I've written, or...? He was tough. He rarely liked things that I wrote. So how did you deal with it? Uh, how did I deal with that? He, uh, he was tough with Tony, too. He was, uh, I accepted it. I, I, fe I felt that he was telling his honest truth. He was, he, was, he was an honest person. He always told the truth about what he, so if he told me that he didn't like something, I could, I could, I respect people's opinions. I respect bad reviews. I do. That's somebody's opinion. I mean, I mean, that's an I statement. I feel this when you do that. And it, <laughs> anybody who's got a kid in middle and a, in a West Side entitled school will understand that one. That's for sure. And you're out there, but but, uh, but here's the interesting thing when you say that because when it's if if the if the critic and reviewer saying this is the way I feel as distinguished from this is the way you should feel, 
And there's a difference between the two. So when dad is reading your material and saying, this is wrong because I know more, or, you know, I've got an opinion. He would always qualify and say, that's my opinion. He would. Uh, that's my opinion. I could be wrong. And he was often wrong, and he started, the wrong started to build up to the point that he'd go like, well, I haven't been right in a while, so you probably shouldn't trust me. <laughs> That's good. No. But I'll tell you some personal story. This film doesn't exist without my father. Because? Because after Nightcrawler, I got a lot of offers, and I was about to do a studio film. My father was dying. I'm sitting with him. He hadn't spoken in five days in the house. He's literally now 48 hours from death. And he hadn't spoken in five days. I'm watching a Mets game. It's in its 22nd inning. And he's, his eyes are closed, and he goes, don't do that film. I'm like, what? He goes, That's, don't do that film. And now, over half an hour, he basically says, follow your heart. Do what you, what, do what you feel is important. You don't know how many films you have that, that people are going to give you the chance to make. Make the ones that you care about. You know, as I was thinking about your father there and thinking about the father figure here who we actually never even meet, Oh, well, William Henry Jackson, yeah. yeah, who's representative, yeah. I mean, so I, the next day I called up the studio, I pulled out of that movie, and I, and I committed to doing this one. I mean, I, I spent a year writing this on spec, is what I did. In, in terms of creating this specific character, how did he evolve? He evolved, these all, movies come from ideas for me. So the idea for this was, I remember the 60s, I was 10 and 69, and I remember this fervent spirit of changing the world, women's rights, civil rights, anti-against-the-war. I thought I was entering this world where everybody was committed to this stuff. Over the last four decades, I realized it's utterly evaporated to the point of almost nothing. I don't judge people for having strolled away from the 1960s, but I became interested in somebody who didn't leave. And when I did the research, it turns out that the people who did not leave the field from the 60s often went into civil rights law and criminal law. So the character sort of developed through the research of the idea, which was, which was beneficial. The language, we were just talking a little bit about words. I mean, the language in, in this piece and what he speaks is, you know, you want to write it down. You want to be able to remember things like, you're too you're near me. You're a low-flying bee. Well, you're too near me to hear me. I mean, right. uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, drowning in the, in the, in the uh, shallow end. Exactly. You're drowning in the shallow end. Exactly. I feel that way sometimes. So that... Talk about how you decided how this would fit into the voice of this character. So, so what I loved about writing this character was he always spoke his mind, which none of us get the opportunity to do. It reminded me of the Seinfeld episode where George decides to just say everything that he's thinking about and just succeeds wildly. And so I thought, Roman can say whatever is on his mind. So you're a low-flying bee. Uh, it's an enema of sunshine. It was just like this inner id got sort of like, every time he opened his mouth, I was allowed to speak what, what I imagined he would be allowed to speak in that moment, and it, that felt liberating. So it was, it was choosing words that, that felt truthful, but, but, but antisocial at the same time. When Denzel read this and knew that these were words that were going to come out of the character that he's going to create with you, what was the dialogue that you the dialogue that you two went in terms of developing this guy? So I call up the studio, I pull out of that movie, I, I sit down, I spend a year, I write this on spec. <clears throat> and my agent's not happy. And and I'm writing it for Denzel. Only for Denzel. If Denzel had not done it, I wouldn't have done the film. And I announced that to everybody I'm working with at the time. Did it, he know too? No, Denzel did not know. I've never met him before. 
I do not advise this as a course of action for future projects. I send it to his agent. Takes a while. He sends it to Denzel. A lot of time goes by. Denzel wants you to come to New York and meet him. I sit down with Denzel. I'm an hour into lunch trying to parse which way this is going. He sticks out his hands. Let's do this movie. Let's do this movie. It was like a week before he started Fences. So it was like a miracle. Because I, I, had he said no, I would have put it away. Did you get a rehearsal time, and how did you work it? Rehearsal is different. With Jake on Nightcrawler, rehearsal was rehearsal. With Denzel, rehearsal was we recreated that apartment in our production office, and every afternoon from about, for about six weeks out, Denzel would come over. We would put on music, and we would talk. We would talk about life, religion, uh, childhood. And after a while, we would start to talk about the script, and we would talk conceptually about the script. And by the time we were done with five weeks, we'd, we'd finished talking conceptually about the script. It was never about scenes. My job, I felt, on this film was to create a space that Denzel felt comfortable creating it. I wanted Denzel to come in and own the character. I did not want to start second-guessing him. I, did, I knew... I, you have to trust that Denzel, at this point in his career, is, is going to be making choices that are going to be really good for the project. And I felt that way. So I never really stepped in. i got to be honest, never really at any point really in the shooting did I ever step in and tell him more of this, less of that. There was never about that. Talk about language. Did he, in reading this, again, because this is, this is, this is finding a character that actually has a way of expressing himself. Right. Did he say, you know, I can't say this. Could you rewrite this? for? Yes, we, absolutely. And, and, he, tailored the he tailored dialogue for what he wanted to do. He did. He didn't change a lot of dialogue, but he certainly tailored things. There were scenes that got tweaked throughout. My, I don't think I would say that. Why am I saying that? It doesn't make sense I'd say that. We would talk it. It was never autocratic on, in, in, any, in any sense. It was always a conversation in which I ultimately wound up coming around to his point of view. He was right. He's strangely brilliant. I still don't understand his process. It was, it was utterly uh, infallible. In, in talking about the process, part of this character is literally the entire physicality. What had what had you during that year conceived in a visual sense? Because this is very different from what he's brought us. This is a guy who walks differently. This is a guy who carries his body differently. That was all Denzel. I mean, I had the guy working in a back room. I had him at the age that he's at. I had him not really antisocial in the sense that he had, didn't have a lot of friends. Denzel came in and said, I'm going to put on 40 pounds. He wore rock ports that were two sizes too big. He put on glasses that were so thick, he can't see out of them. So anytime he's wearing those glasses, the world is a blur. And these things started to build up to the point that the studio finally called them and goes, hey, man, the, the clothes are good. The hair is good. The thing is good. But all of it together, it seems like it's too much. I'm pushing back, pushing back. I hang up the phone. I go downstairs. Denzel smiles. I ground my teeth out. Yeah. And it's like, he just kept going with it. And, but the final effect is that he's created this living, breathing thing that that to me feels very real you know one of the things um that is a sort of fascinating dialogue for to talk to directors about literally it's wardrobe it's costume and since the wardrobe and costume are part of this story do you remember choosing or who chose that first suit that he buys the most important thing he went off to do fences and he was like a submarine he disappeared so about four months later i was going like wow we're gonna have to start picking this up I got my prop person together, and we built that briefcase. We found the biggest, horrendous big briefcase you could find. We filled it with every physical item that that character would have. By the time we were done, it weighed 35 pounds, and I sent it up to his house. 
And within three days, he called up. He goes, I love this brief. We put the name thing on it. He goes, I love this briefcase. Let's, let's meet. Like, so that was, that started the process then of the physicality of building a character, sending that briefcase. Actors do love that stuff, man. They do. I mean, it's stuff. It's relevant. You know, what's what's in a wallet? You know, what's what's well, in a also, house? Also, what literally? What are you going to wear yeah. in the choosing of that particular suit? The yeah. first suit, the the, the they call brownish the, red one. Oh, the you, that, the, the, the burgundy one, yes. the three piece. Do you remember? We went through a lot of choices, and that that there was a time for about a week that Denzel was very much committed to this sort of sort of almost carpet pattern plaid. It was frightening. It was just like you can't wear that. And he, I'm not going to wear that. So the burgundy suit became the the thing that he wore. <laughs> Talk about casting the other actors yeah. for a little bit because it's also a wonderful cast. How did you decide who and when? And what's your process? The process is different with every film. The process here is you're working with Denzel. You cannot put him with anybody who's not a great actor. That's, you have to start from that premise. So there wasn't any part in the film that we probably didn't look at 30 people for. Not Colin. I knew I wanted to work with Colin. Colin is. Did you, had you known Colin as well? I knew Colin because he flirted with Born Legacy for a while, and we got to know each other. And I always wanted to work with him. He's a tremendous actor. I wanted to work. Colin and Maya. Colin, George, and Maya had to be great actors. They also had to be have a sense of soul because at the end of the film, you have to believe that they've been Colin touched by this guy. So Colin is this deep Irish soul. Carmen is just this 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 well of 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 deep feeling, and so they were both cast because they were great actors and because they both had that quality. Carmen was like we sent we we auditioned forty five actresses, and Carmen was not at the bottom or the top of the list. Carmen was one of the actresses we wanted to. We were very curious in it because she'd done such a good job at Selma, but she came in and she did the dinner scene, and she just um, she just had such such depth that before she walked out of the room, we were like, "This is no, great." Did she read with Denzel? No, she read with uh, with me. I was there for every audition. I go to every audition. And when you say she read with you, do you read? Vicky Thomas read, and I was sitting there watching and then sort of like tinkering a little bit. And but I go to every audition, no matter how part, how small the part is. That's and usually in the important. audition, how do you participate? Um, what's going to happen? If I were coming in and auditioning for a guy who's going to be interviewing you, how would it happen? First thing I do is thank you for coming in and I acknowledge how, how with the, the scenario that you're about to sort of step out on a tightrope for me and I really acknowledge that. And why don't we just see where you're at and let's go from there. And then, and then if I felt, I think in Carmen's case, it was like she went pretty far with the emotion of it and then I think at some point I said, let's just see if the bottom was to drop out for this character, what would it look like? If she was emotionally just really about to reveal something that was just profoundly eating at her and not, and she was incapable of discussing with anybody else what would that look like and Carmen just instantly went to this place with this take and as a matter of fact it was so deep that I knew when we did this scene with Carmen that was one we, so normally you start with a wide medium and close up we, we, I didn't want Carmen to go through that dinner scene so we started the first we did one take of her close up and got what we needed because I'm not going to ask an actor to go back there again because it's not organic so we got her close up of what was going on and then we backed everything out through there did you, uh, now, the, speaking of those moments, multiple cameras? Are you into it? No, we were single camera film. That's and, film. And why single camera? Why? I'll tell you why. Because Robert Ellsworth's a cinematographer. He's my right arm in, in, in all matters cinematic. And I had a conversation with Robert quite a while ago. It was like, you know, you use two cameras. Yeah, you can pick up speed. But you have to light for two cameras. And that sloppy second angle will affect your composition on your first angle. It will. It just will. And, and, and a single camera focus you, fo forces you to light 
for that for that composition and shot. If you're going to get a second angle, you go to that. It also for, forces you to have a real game plan and move quickly. So there was we never had two cameras running ever. That was single camera, and then the battle became film. It's expensive, as we all know, and and actually Denzel and I picked up the the price tag on it to shoot film. And the reason? Because I'm I'm committed to film. I think film has got a grain and a texture that the Alexa, even with the film curve, is it's it's the film the grain on the film curve is not a moving is not a moving grain as far as I can see. It's sort of almost a template. And there's a warmth to film that I don't think you can capture somewhere else. Let's talk about Los Angeles. That has a major part in this movie. How did you decide to find the spaces and the streets, and even how did you shoot on some of the streets? When I was writing the script, I was coming downtown a lot to the criminal court system. I was there for six months, just every day going to the courts, and I noticed there was a tremendous amount of construction going on. And I thought, this is perfect. The character is coming out of a 40-year time warp into this world that's transforming. He's transforming himself, and everywhere you go, there's more construction going on in downtown Los Angeles than anywhere else in the country. You drive down to the 10, it looks like Berlin after 1945. There's so many cranes just like moving around. And so that just worked out so perfectly. And just from a, from a societal standpoint, Skid Row. It's a, it's, a, it's a nightmarish moral disaster that's going on down there. By the way, when we see, in fact, all the blue tents, were you shooting real or did... We were shooting real. We did the French Connection thing. We, most of the time, Denzel's out on the street. We hid the camera in an alleyway. We would come in. We would come in. Robert Ellswit, Ellswit and I, his AC, and maybe one or two other people would come in. We would put up sticks. We'd put the camera on sticks. We would put it in the alleyway. We would have our cameras worked out, and within five or ten minutes, Denzel would come up with a van where we wanted him. He'd get out, and we would just start shooting. So the scene on the phone, he's just walking down the street. We were filming him from about, we had a, I don't know, maybe a, not a 400, we might have had a 400 on. We were filming him from far away. We were doing, we called them surveillance shots. Because, you know, you can get great extras and stuff, but but there's just something about, when I watch the Con French Connection of movies like that, and you see Gene Hackman and, and uh, what's his name, going down the street, it just looks so real. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, thank you. In the space, the, the building that he actually lives in, which we see the exterior, I assume you built the interior. You did build it on the stage because uh, just that was a house in house that was a house in South Pasadena that had been condemned that we took over the first floor and rebuilt. And the construction site next to him was all visual effects. That's right. So, yeah. so, so you found the exterior of a building that yes. you liked. It had a parking lot next to it, which became our base camp. And then you spend the ungodly amount to do the visual effects. It's it's just so expensive. <laughs> You know, it's so, so fascinating because when I when I remember seeing the credits and it, 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 there's the visual effects right. credits, I'm thinking that wait a minute, this movie is this is on the street, this is real, this is natural. What what are the visual effects? And I actually then thought that might be that that's that's that space might be that was visual effects. Now, what got built besides the interior? Is the that was it? That was the only thing that we built. And and for you, when you're uh, what's your homework the night before you're walking onto a on a new set? So the fourth time I'm doing my shot list. And it's Ellswit. He's so intimidating. Like, I'm a second-time director going on and telling El Robert Ellswit where the camera's going to go. <laughs> it's still like, I can't believe I'm doing it. Um, so it's just like, the sh Robert and I have met, we, we meet endlessly about the shot list. So now it's like the night before. It's not the night before. I get two hours sleep, and then you wake up at 3.30, and now you're spending two hours on the final shot list. Because I will find things on during the day, but I'm very much committed to getting, these are designed films. These are designed. There's not like we're showing up in the set and trying to find it. It's not like, let's put four cameras here and we'll cut it together somehow. These are single setup shots. They're going together a certain way. And, and we're not getting a tremendous amount of coverage. These are designed, we're covering it from these four angles and that's what it is. 
We're moving fast. You have so, to. In terms of, of the discussion with Robert, did you spend time before the actual shoot making your first pass at, at, at your um, you know, shot list? There were 60 locations here, and Ellswit and I probably visited all of them three times before we started shooting. It's an endless return, return, return. This, what about this? What about this angle? Robert, Robert is very detail-oriented. Very, Robert is all about preparation. Robert takes the day you shoot very, very seriously. This is not a time to be discovering. Yes, if something happens and you... As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what Robert found. That scene in the dinners, when we came in, we did that rack focus and you could come through and he's like, the world is disappearing and Maya's talking. So we were shooting that night and Robert comes up. He goes, there's a great angle I'm looking at from behind and there's a, he's described it. It's, it's a rack focus behind him and we did that shot. So we found that and we're open to doing that kind of stuff. And that became then a signature shot that we used in other scenes. But that, so we're, I'm open to things happening. The 360 around him in the desert, was that something you guys had? That was designed. That was totally designed. And then we had a great steady cam operator, Colin. And, uh, and, and did you add to it at the very end? Because it We ramped up. it up the last, the hun- last, hundred, last 270 degrees, we ramped up 400%. Because we wanted to sort of like spiritual, sort of like he's like now going off into, into whatever's up there. What's the first thing you do when you arrive on the set? Your first thing. What do you do? I go up to Robert Ellswit and I, and I have a cup of coffee with him and we talk about what we're about to do. With the first shot, is there, where's the dolly? So the dolly, okay, it's the dolly. So, so, so they're setting, Chris is setting up the dolly and, and Ian's got the lights over there and we're talking about just looking at it. Denzel's not even remotely a part of what's going on yet. And we're, we're walking it through. Does the track look right? This is all what we talked about. We want, so we're set on a 28 or 35, whatever it is. Now, sometimes in that kind of situation, when you ask an actor to say, okay, we've now designed this, if the actor hasn't really felt it, sometimes they're going to say, well, I, I wouldn't walk over into the room. Such a great point. What Robert and I are designing on this movie <clears throat> is a scenario that Denzel is going to come in and do what he wants to do. Denzel is not, Denzel is coming in and he's going to feel what he's going to feel and he's going to do what he's going to do. He knows the scene. We know what's going on. But the choreography of it, no. We have designed the shot <clears throat> to capture the choreography of what he's going to do. We can, and it's designed that we know if he's going to go sit on the bed or if he's going to go over here, we know that, that after we do our master, we're ready to go in and start to cover from that side. But it's in no way, <clears throat> no way, and I would never do that with an actor. I would, just not have, and I would never have the inclination, you're coming here, you're sitting here, you're going over here, and you're coming over. I just don't feel that's natural. So when Denzel walks into the, the set at this it particular It gets very moment, quiet. And, but there, there's a camera up already. The camera's ready. Yeah, no. This we're, You're shooting within a minute of Denzel showing up on the set. It is like a baseball pitcher going up to the mound. It that, is, was that the deal that the two of you Absolutely. It, 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 is, it is call me out when you're ready. Because when you call me out, I am ready. I, am, I, have, I, have, I have gotten myself geared up. I am fully in character. I'm walking from the trailer onto the set. Let's go. Could please respect my process. And I do. That's his process. Now, when you want to, and it may not have happened very much, but you created this guy, when you might say, I want this shift, I want to adjust this moment, I want you to do something else, how would that exchange happen? I don't know if it happened, it may not have. It never happened. There was never a time that he was not ahead of me on the character. I wrote the character, I understood the character on, on every possible deep level. Within two weeks, he was ahead of me on the character. I was always trying to play catch up with him. He was doing things that I could, and I'm being honest with you. I mean, I could, I'd love to sit here and say, like, 
I this was all me. I mean, look, he was my collaborative creative partner on this movie. He transformed himself in, in a way that 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 I still don't fully understand his process, but I could see what the result was. And I wasn't getting in the way of it. For you, what were the more challenging scenes as a director for you? The more challenging scenes they were there was none that there's none. I wish I could tell there was some that stood out. I mean, yeah, you're working with cars, you shut down the freeway. That's a nightmare. But that was typical stuff. Yeah. There was no particular challenge. Every I can't say there was a particular scene that was a challenge. Are there scenes that you shot that are not in the movie? I mean, yeah, there was a yeah. There's like six scenes in the movie that didn't get that didn't get in the movie. Big scenes. The, the kid with doing the pro bono work. We had a whole scene at night where the kid like he makes the kids stay late and work. We had a scene where he went to the hospital the first night. Uh, this you know we went to Toronto. We were too long. We went from the cutting room to 36 hours later in Toronto. We didn't show it to a big room before that, and we went to Toronto. And the feedback was it was a little long. It was a little meandering. It wasn't focused. So Denzel and I went back into the cutting room. I would never go into the cutting room with an actor. Denzel, it was a joy to go in with him. With him. Utterly objective. Utterly sort of not like make my part bigger or smaller. Intuitive, smart, concise. Uh, for three weeks, he and my, my brother John's my editor. Like the three of us are in the room. Like it was just an absolute joy. We cut out 13 minutes of the movie. We restructured scenes. Um, so we, had, we probably had like seven fairly major scenes that are going to be on the DVD that we cut out and, and on the process from the, after Toronto, streamlining and focusing it more on the story and leaning less into these moments. I thought watching him read the phone book going into Toronto was going to be interesting. I still think it's interesting. People want to have a little bit more focus, turns out. Let's talk the music. Um, because I feel like there's, there, there's, he listens to this music. There's sometimes we hear it, but oftentimes we do not. Yeah. Was that evolutionary? Did you think initially, we're going to always hear what he's I hearing? I did. I did. Denzel was always listening to music on his earphones throughout all the scenes. Always. And then there were times, like Cosmic Slop. He was listening to that while he was shooting the scene. That's why we picked it. He was listening to some other songs while he was, while he was doing it. Denzel so did, has had a big influence on it. Denzel has 28,000 songs on his iPod. So he listens to music all the time. Did you ask him to listen? Because we're also no. talking. No, he does. Denzel would come out and have the little ear, and he would just be listening to it. And you often had to say, Denzel, we're going to do another take. And you go, what? You go, we're going to do another take. Okay. And you put him back on. In terms of doing another take, how many would there be? Would Not you, many. I really, I got to be honest. Denzel's like a relief pitcher. Like he's coming in and he's throwing his best stuff right up front. And he's telling you, I'm giving you my best stuff. And it is his best stuff. It is right there. Now, with that, every now and then you're in the experience where another actor actually has to warm up. It's going to take two, three, to take five before that actor is going to be at here. God help them. That's, that did not happen too many times on the set. I mean, it's the people came in. Everybody knew the process. People came in prepared. And I, the people were told to come in prepared. This was like, we are moving fast. We are moving specifically. And and this is the process we want to move at. And Colin is just Colin can move as fast as you want. Colin is Colin is there every take, and it's not like a rote take. It's, he's not doing the same thing every time. Colin Colin will come in and feel what he's feeling, which is what you love, and bring it into the thing. But but and Carmen, these are people who are. I was dealing with three absolute professionals. In in choices, uh, both in storytelling and as a director. Did you go through a moment where I am going to see him get shot? I'm not going to see him get shot. What made you make that? No, he's never going to get shot because it was always going to be it's, because it wasn't about him getting killed. We were going for for a sort of a spiritual transcendence at the end. So the idea of actually watching him get shot would have been anathema. But I'll tell you something. 
that night, I'd say this was a tough night. We were shooting on that alley. We'd close down A Street and, and we didn't have the money to do it again another night. It's 4.15 in the morning. We have like another hour of sunlight. I mean, over dark before it gets sunlight. I think the shot list was like five shots and we didn't have time to do them all. Robert and I and Denzel huddled and we decided, let's just do the briefcase on its side. Let's not do the back from the alley wide, seeing the body. Let's just focus in on that. And then, look, I'll give credit where credit. Colin comes up to me at that moment and I'm going like, how are we going to do these other three shots? And Colin comes up smoking a cigarette and he goes, mate, you're not going to have me do the, the horrible thing where I'm crying over the body, are you? Can't you just like shoot it from my feet? And he walks away. I'm going like, Oh yeah, we can. So I'm going like, we'll shoot it from his feet. I look. I think that's good directing when you come up with when you take someone else's good idea. It's very good directing. I felt proud of myself. I was going like, that's a good idea, man. I'm I'm taking. So really, it was we didn't have enough time. Had to be the briefcase. Colin comes over and says, "Can you shoot my feet?" That's what it became. That last shot on on Denzel, which is actually a specific lens and it's a specific oh, looking yeah. up at him. Can you talk about that? That I always had that shot in mind from the time I wrote the script. I always had the image of a hi-hat coming up with the halo over his head. And, it, you know, it's symbolic. He's certainly like, you know, he's going up sort of into this sort of light that's above him. But I, I had that image in my head from the time I wrote the script. That was one of the few images that actually was, was specific. I knew I was aiming for that image. I'm going back to the music because in the opening, when we first see the, the, the case being presented, um, there's a choral music that's part of it. And you introduce that again. Um, in fact, I guess when he's writing it again, talk a little bit about your dealing with music, since music is such a theme in here in this piece. I don't think about score while I'm writing in any way. But I work with James Newton Howard, and we just decided when he was writing the brief that since that was a point in the movie where he was sort of already started going off into another world, that it would that a choir would be good. We 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 flirted with the organ, but the organ seemed like it had been done a little bit too much lately, so we were sort of backing off the organ. So the choir became something. James is James is. Incredibly talented. I mean, my God, I'm so lucky to work with James. And it, it, did, does he write themes that he then um, shares with you, or because I know oh, you yeah. have James a music would, Yeah, he, he calls you in, he presents it, and most for the most part, it's almost always spot on. We talk about it. he did Nightcrawler, and we we talked about that a lot. So uh, with with your brother as your editor, I mean. The family issues. I mean, we started a little bit about family issues. The family, but how does it? What's very the, close. I don't. I don't know why, but my and I know my brother. My brother Tony's a writer and a director. My brother John's an editor. We are very close. We, I don't know. We were raised in a home where, where it was like the concept was any tide that raises one of our boats is going to raise all of them, and that we. I think we all believe that. So any sort of envy that is natural between brothers or sisters or sisters and brothers or anybody is envy, man. We get envious. Some hear some good news, like why isn't it happening to me? All that stuff. We, I, I, our mother and father very much were sort of like, it, you will all benefit from anything good that happens to some of you. So we took that to heart, and we, I, we live that way, I and mean, we talk every day, the three of us. Did so Thanksgiving is happening every single day. Did the, yeah, did, I mean we have a lot to be thankful for, and one of it is that we get along. You know, I am thankful for that. Did you show t Tony a version of this? I mean, is he an early viewer? Yeah, of Tony work? said you're a little long. And I didn't believe him. I didn't believe him. So you had to have Toronto. So you're wrong, man. Talk. They're going to love every minute of it. As you, as, you, as you reflect on this, how have you changed as a director? Uh, I'm more humble. I am. It's it's that I thought I thought I thought oh I don't need to screen it to a big room I learned something about that 
I am more humble. I learned something. You do have to show it to a big room. You do need to get a sense of how it's going to play in a big room. And so I have more humility, I think. Um, you learn more about the camera every time you do it. I'm a second-time director. And I'm studying about cinematography when I'm not directing. So, But I'm learning about the camera. I'm learning about the language of film. I'm a writer primarily. But I do understand, I think, more about how to move the camera around. What do you like best about the process so far? And Writing. what do you like worst about it? Writing is my favorite part. And what do you like? What's the worst part? I'm actually looking at it as a director. As a director, what do you like best about directing? What do you find the, the most troublesome about being About a directing? Uh-huh. Staying in my conscious brain, because writing for me is a subconscious process. I'm in a room alone, and all I'm trying from the minute I sit down is to turn off my conscious brain and not be literal, not be represented. We talked about that. Not be in this. And directing is the counter opposite of it. And it's unnatural for me to spend so many weeks and months sort of like in the present. I, it's, not, it's not where I've spent the last 25 years. And so it's like I have to, I have to put on this other part of my brain and be here. Because I like being in the other part more. <laughs> well, listen, you've brought us in both parts, so thanks very much for sharing. And thank, thank you, you for, for staying. Film. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Jeremy Kagan, check out episode 91, which features Mr. Kagan discussing his film Shot with director Mick Jackson. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes, including Alexander Payne's Downsizing, Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, and James Franco's The Disaster Artist, and click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.